David writes in Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Would you pray with me? We raise our eyes today and our hearts to you, the true giver of life and the genuine, authentic source of what truly matters. And so as we have an opportunity to sing praise to you and describe with our singing your character and your majesty, your attributes, your grace and love, I pray that we would not hold back for you are deserving of everything. And all that takes place in this hour, from the fellowshipping together to the reading, praying, and studying, and singing, that it would exalt you, that it would indeed lift our eyes up, away from ourselves, and onto you, our great and glorious God. We pray it in Jesus' name. You do a little research on uh, con artists, and you get more than you bargain for. Everything from Irish... Sweepstakes, going out of sale, businesses, scams of counterfeit goods, rental properties, natural disasters, which open the door for scam artists. The definition of a con artist is someone who intentionally misleads another person for the sake of financial gain. Several of the most famous con artists in American history included one man I came across in just reading on the subject who actually had a movie made about his scams during his criminal life. He passed off bad checks to the tune of about $2.5 million throughout about 26 different countries. He pretended to be an airline pilot, which then allowed him to travel free. The courtesy of airline companies used to allow pilots to travel for free, and he got away with it for quite some time until he was finally discovered and almost caught. And So he changed his profession and his outfit to that of a medical doctor, He even landed a job for a while as a medical supervisor. So if you're thinking about having medical major surgery, that'll give you pause, won't it? He was eventually arrested but escaped from prison by masquerading as an officer. He eventually was offered his freedom from prison if he would help the government against scam artists. And he helped them out and started his own fraud consulting firm and has since become a millionaire and an author. Another con artist in the... Those two aren't necessarily connected. Um, okay. a, a con artist in the mid-1900s was one of the most interesting con men in American history. He actually made a living selling New York's public landmarks to gullible tourists. He actually, on several occasions, sold Grant's tomb, posing as the general's grandson. He actually, if you can believe it, to wealthy businessmen from out of state, sold the original Madison Square Garden. He didn't own it. He sold it. He set up a fake office to handle his real estate scams, produced impressive forged documents to prove he was the legal owner. His favorite object to sell people was the Brooklyn Bridge. He sold it more than 100 times. 
He convinced his gullible victims that they would make a fortune by controlling traffic access to the bridge. And on more than one occasion, police officers had to remove these unsuspecting new owners of the bridge when they showed up to try to put up toll barriers to start charging motorists. He was finally convicted of his crimes, and since then his scam operations became the basis for the popular saying, well, if you believe me, then I've got a bridge to sell you. One interesting con artist from the early 1900s built and sold a device that he convinced people could produce a perfect counterfeit $100 bill. Since this was the early 1900s, people were fascinated with this new concept of a paper copier. His name was not Xerox, if you're wondering. Don't come up afterward and ask me, okay? He was able to convince people to buy his device at the unbelievable price of $30,000. In 1910, that was a king's ransom. But he would tell people, he warned people, that his device could only print one bill every six hours. And he actually designed it to actually spit out a sheet of paper on time, a perfectly forged or so they thought, $100 bill every six hours. The device actually contained two genuine $100 bills. But once they were spat out of the machine, it produced only blank paper. And by the time the buyer discovered the scam, this con artist had used those 12 hours to get away. I went online, and and you can see one ad after another. They're constantly offering scams. As soon as you pay the deposit and get the little kit that hardly has anything in it, you're left holding a bag, so to speak. Here's one I saw that said, earn a college degree at home, no tests, and no grades. (laughs) I wish I'd had that 30 years ago. I would have loved that college education. Another banner flashes, bad credit, no credit. No problem. You are pre-approved. Another ad offers a laptop and a printer for only $39.99, direct from the factory, just click here. Another promises, earn $5,000 a week working from home part-time. There's your job you've been looking for. Just send in your money and they'll send you the kit. And by the way, they've got a bridge to sell you too. Obviously, scam artists proliferate in any culture, as Micah the prophet warned. They dream up crimes while they're lying in their beds. They can barely wait till morning light. They will take off to pull off their schemes. It's my paraphrase of Micah chapter 2 and verse 1. That's one thing to be a, a scam artist where people lose their money. It's another thing to be involved in a religious scam where people lose both their money and their spiritual equilibrium. In other words, it's one thing for a victim to potentially lose his shirt. It's another thing entirely for a scam to cause people to lose their spiritual footing, even be deceived and lose their souls. Spiritual con artists proliferate as well as financial con artists. And the Apostle Paul has been 
telling Titus in chapter 1 how to put the church in good and effective order. And it would be paramount to find men who would wear the mantle of a shepherd so that people would effectively be led honestly and uh, authentically in a genuine spiritual manner. So it's no wonder, really, to find at the end of the list of qualifications in chapter 1, Paul immediately launches into a warning for the church. And And he basically says, you're already in trouble. They have already infiltrated. They're already turning everything upside down. So Titus, you need to get busy and and hurry because they need genuine shepherds because these people are open to being scammed. Isn't it true that wherever the seeds of truth are sown, the seeds of deception will be close by? There's no such thing as a lawn without weeds. And don't I know that full well now? At this season. There's no such thing as a garden without weeds. Those who serve as genuine shepherds must not only sow the seeds of truth, but they must be willing to pull out the, the weeds of dangerous deceptions that Paul referred to as doctrines of demons. First Timothy 4.1. That is doctrines that seem otherworldly, that seem spiritual, but they are, in effect, misleading. And they will lead someone through the doors of whatever religion or cult that is into the jaws of hell. So Titus, understand why we need elders, not only for the positive effect of exhorting in sound doctrine, but also refuting those who contradict, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. And Satan just so happens to be a master at deception, and so are his servants. He's really good at it. He has had several thousand years to practice on human beings. From the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of human history to the 21st century, he's literally honed his craft. He is the ultimate con artist. And his favorite scam of all where many have been distracted and divided and even destroyed, as one author put it, is to drape his lies in the beautiful robes of truth. And his followers end up with an empty bag and with great loss. He hides his deceptions behind smiling faces and encouraging promises so Titus, you got to be able to spot the lie, and I want you to be able to spot the liar and expose them. And so you're going to need to select men who will do the same with spiritual discernment and courage. One author writes of this task given to Titus, who was at that moment surrounded by spiritual deceivers, He writes, and how convincing these false teachers are, keeping their true nature carefully concealed, even from themselves, which is an interesting point because you remember they are deceived themselves. They're going to one day stand by the bucket load in front of the Lord and they're going to say, look, didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we cast out demons in your name and didn't we perform miracles in your name? And Jesus is going to say, yeah, you did it all in my name, but I what? Never knew you. Never knew you. You didn't work for me. He says, this author of false leaders, they deftly move among the elect. They move up through the ranks of authority and into positions of power. They are lacking biblical truth. They win friends and influence people by means of a charisma that's difficult to resist, even for those who despise falsehood. Nevertheless, a trained eye can spot them. My question would be then, how do you spot a con artist? 
Well, Titus is going to be given several characteristics of false teachers. And I want you to go back to verse 9 again, and that sort of sets the stage. As Paul writes to Titus, these elders must be able to hold fast the faithful word. Why? So that they can exhort in sound doctrine, that's positive, and also refute those who contradict, that's negative. Exhorting in sound doctrine is on the offensive. Refuting those who contradict is being on the defensive, which includes offensive qualities as well. Those who contradict, there in verse 9, is a reference to false teachers. So how do you spot them? Paul gives us three descriptive characteristics of these men, and I'll add women, who lead the church astray. And at least one or more of these, sometimes all three of them, will be evident if you will become alert and evaluate what they say in light of Scripture. Let me give you the first one. Here's the first characteristic of a con artist. They are known as unaccountable personalities. Paul characterizes them in verse 10 when he writes, For there are many rebellious men. Now what does he mean? Well, that word translated rebellious is the same word found up a few verses earlier in verse 6. To speak of a grown elder's child at some point whose lifestyle, even though under still the authority of his father, is, is trumping his father's authority. He sets himself up against his father's authority. And having no regard for the authority of his father, he then discredits his father from serving as an elder. That's the idea here. In the context here, this is a spiritual leader and teacher who claims to be under no authority. Not even the word. He is equal to, if not above, the word of God. Whatever he speaks is infallible. Even though he might not say it that way, he expects you to believe it simply because he said it. His favorite phrases will explicitly state or, or subtly imply, God doesn't speak to you like he speaks to me, so you need to listen to me. God told me what I'm going to tell you. And you get the impression as a listener that, wow, he's got a direct line, God speaking to him. I wish I could have God speak to me. He's setting himself up as his own authority. He's effectively telling people, look, if you want to argue with God, you know, that's going to be your problem. In other words, he becomes the spiritual authority. He alone is the true source of spiritual insight. The Bible will be a resource for what he teaches, but it will not be the source of what he teaches. He might quote a verse or two. He might say certain words. It's just a resource, though. This is part of his scam to let you drop your guard and believe what he says after he quotes the verse. His favorite verse, by the way, as he sets himself up as the ultimate authority, is something like 1 Corinthians 16, 22. I've actually heard men say that from the pulpit. Touch not God's anointed, and do his prophets no harm. Isn't that a great verse? Touch not God's anointed, and do his prophets no harm. And with that, you can't touch him. To quote that eminent theologian M.C. Hammer, I just want to be relevant here for just a moment, okay? <laughs> I'm dating myself, too. The younger people are going, who? Hammer? Hammer? You can't touch this guy. I mean, that verse is his shield. He's off limits. He's out of your jurisdiction. You can't come close to him. 
And besides, he makes it very clear that nobody else is as smart as he is or as close to God as he is or as anointed as he is. And whatever he says must be from God. And so we're to just keep to our little selves. He's God's anointed. Somebody sent me a video link some time ago of a church service. I was so shocking that I actually watched it twice. Several thousand people are standing and cheering what I was watching. A visiting evangelist, visiting the pseudo-evangelical church, came on the stage with a, with a huge oversized version of the Torah, uh, the five, first five books of the Old Testament. The evangelist was claiming that he was about to perform some sort of special ceremony, and he promised this pastor bishop that he would then receive a special anointing, an anointing I, that exceeded anything I've ever heard claimed. So they unrolled some of the scroll, and they literally wrapped it around the pastor who stood there on the stage. They wrapped it around his body, where he was hidden from sight. And then after making all sorts of declarations that sounded slightly biblical and mostly mystical and even heretical, The evangelist had them unwrap the scroll, and as the pastor stepped forward, they effectively claimed he was now uniquely anointed to speak with the same inspiration from God as the Torah was inspired by God. He could never be wrong. What he said was tantamount to Scripture. They even, they even further had him seated in his pastoral chair and they, several men came and lifted him up over their heads and they paraded around the stage over their heads as the evangelist proclaimed that he was now effectively prophet and king and everybody's cheering. I sat there with my mouth open. How does that kind of blasphemy go unchecked? How does any man become equally inspired with the text of Scripture, and then you just begin to think of false religions, and that's exactly what's happening. I couldn't believe it. They were parading him around. You could do that with me. I'd be fun. I'd enjoy the ride, but you can't say I'm now king. Like Christ. Prophet. Like Christ. One of the protective benefits of a plurality of spiritual leaders, shepherds, is that no one is ultimately unaccountable. In fact, even the Apostle Paul, you'd think that, well, Paul, you know, he was taken to heaven, given a Torah, discipled by uh, the Spirit of God. He saw the resurrected Lord. No, even Paul deferred to the counsel of other leaders in the church at Jerusalem, according to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 2. But what makes spiritual deceivers all the more dangerous is the context here in chapter 1. They are, they are rising up from within the body, not outside. They don't show up and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. Can I come in? Because I'm going to deceive everybody I can deceive. Horns and a pitchfork and a tail. You'd say, oh, I can, I can spot that one. No, these are, these are men and women who use the language we use, who are part of the fellowship. They're rising from within the body. These are professing believers, not unbelievers. And the deception of their teaching seems to have the endorsement of the church they represent. And people are cheering them on. And that's what's going here. In fact, Paul begins the paragraph by saying, there are many of them. Many. Poloi. There are, there are a multitude of them. Titus, you've already got a problem. The church is already infiltrated. You better move quickly. 
The deception is already at hand, and there are people who think that they are, in fact, speaking for God. Well, that's the first characteristic of a false teacher. They present themselves as unaccountable personalities. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, and I'll outline it this way, they're known by their empty promises. Verse 10, he describes them as empty talkers. This is the only time this adjective is found in in the New Testament. It refers to someone who uses worthless words, someone who uses impressive language. It seems that it has substance until you critically think through it. Solomon uses the idea in in the Greek Old Testament translation. The Septuagint translates it this way. It's worthless. It's vain. It's it's empty. it, It has no real substance. It's impressive language, but it has little or no solid content. These teachers are fluent, but they're shallow. In other words, they're great at making sermons and speeches, but when you evaluate the content of the sermon, they are biblically shallow, really at best, and deceptively misleading at worst. Lies draped in beautiful cloth. They're fluent. They have oratorical ability. In fact, one author said, you can often spot those who don't teach the truth by the way they so beautifully say absolutely nothing. Well put. They're slick. They're, they're smooth. They're con artists. You'll buy something from them and realize, wait, that was my shirt to begin with. And you try to pin them down on what they're teaching, some, some objective matter of biblical doctrine and truth, and they're going to wiggle around it. There's a greater danger there in this context, though, and and I want to address it. It's bound up in this characteristic of a false teacher. They're they're empty talkers. It doesn't mean that what they say doesn't resonate. But what they do say has no lasting spiritual value. In fact, most of it has to do with temporary living lifestyles here and now. They deliver smooth words without spiritual life. In his powerful little expose entitled Christless Christianity, if you'd like to do a little further study on this subject, he addresses Titus, but also he, he uh, addresses contemporary Christianity with, with harsh words. Uh, Michael Horton, uh, an evangelical believer, got his doctorate from Oxford University and now teaches at Westminster Seminary in California. I have just about everything the guy's written. Uh, he, he thinks so critically. He says, and he explains, that Christless Christianity does not mean that false religion or false spirituality is missing words like Jesus and Lord and Savior. What he says is that, that those terms are taken out of the context of Scripture, the contexts of sin and rebellion and a divine rescue and heaven and hell. He writes, Jesus in contemporary evangelical false teaching that's been baptized into the church has turned Jesus into a therapist, into a buddy, into a significant other, into a good model, into a a political messiah. They They may tack on the gospel at the end of a sermon, but that's only for evangelical window dressing. And I've seen it happen. He He, in fact, uh, extensively evaluates in his book the content of messages objectively 
parsing them down by popular speakers and authors like Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland and others. They may wrap up their sermons by asking people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, which makes them sound all the more biblical, but a Savior of what? A Lord over what? Saved from where? These questions are unanswered unless you're talking about being saved from an unfulfilling job, being redeemed from oppression, or sickness, or low self-esteem. So again, the Bible is a resource for terminology and advice, but it isn't the source of meaning or exposition. He used an interesting illustration, and, and, it, and it might tweak your thinking at first, but follow me carefully through this. He says, you know, when, he said, when, when my wife and I had triplets, we needed advice. You can only imagine it. He said, we got advice from everybody. And, and all of our advice didn't come from Christians. In fact, he says, I got great advice from my barber and his wife. <laughs> and he makes the interesting point that you don't need the Bible in order to know that your child needs regular sleep patterns and how to get them on it. Or for that matter, that the secret of a good marriage is talking to each other. Or, or that divorce can be devastating for children. Or that if you don't rule over your credit cards, your credit cards will rule over you. Of course, the Bible gives us a lot of wisdom on subjects like these. But there are plenty of non-Christians who actually do a better job at giving out and following advice than Christians. That unbeliever who lives in your neighborhood might be a better financial manager than you. Their children may be sleeping six hours through the night, which isn't fair. <laughs> he makes this point. Someone can lose weight, stop smoking, improve one's marriage, and become a nicer person without Jesus. There are a lot of people that do it. So if Christianity is nothing more than ethical advice on how to live a really good and clean and happy and, and you sleep well at night life, how to become a better person with a more positive attitude to live the best life possible now, who are we then to say that our religion is the only true religion when there are other religions with the same doctrines, the same golden rule, and their people are becoming better people because of that too? So if religion is basically ethics... If you reduce Christianity down to just good advice that you could get anywhere, it just will blend in with the culture of religion. Our teaching may sound relevant. It may seem to connect. But it actually gets lost in a marketplace of ethical ideologies. And the world looks at us and says, why would you think yours is the only one? So who are we then to say that Christianity is the only true religion, especially when the kind of Christianity now peddled by so many false teachers is nothing more than good advice and moral platitudes and creative principles? Here's the point. What distinguishes Christianity at its heart is not necessarily its moral code, although it ought to impact that, but its truth about a creator 
who was rejected and denied by those he created in his image. And he then stooped to reconcile them to himself through his son by faith in Christ alone. See, Christianity at its heart, which makes it unique, is the gospel. The good news that God has reconciled the move toward man, reconciling them to himself through Christ. That's the distinguishing mark of of Christianity. And everything then flows out of the context of who we are as redeemed, reconciled, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, children of God by faith alone in Christ alone. We have that kind of Savior. He is that kind of Lord. We have that kind of salvation. And what does the false teacher focus on? Everything but him. How to get heaven now. How to get some of that gold pavement into our pockets now. Because we ought to have it as children of God. How to get healthy now. How to learn the secrets of a good self-image and a better marriage and a positive way of thinking and better parenting skills and all of that, which may be in fact true. But other religions teach those things as well. And if that is supposed to lead you to salvation, you'll discover those were empty words. Everything is taught. But sin and redemption and Jesus Christ is the crucified, atoning Lamb of God for sinners slain. And even now the soon coming King for whom we wait That's the good news. The con artist gives you something you think you want, but then you realize it really doesn't satisfy. Now think about it. If money makes you happy, then the happiest people on the planet ought to be the wealthiest people. Right? You know that isn't true. If good health made you satisfied, then sick people would have no joy and personal trainers and bodybuilders would be the happiest people on the planet. But you know that isn't true either. A con artist gives you what you want, and that's part of the danger. We pander to that stuff. We think that really is what life is all about. We're easy marks, aren't we? But in the end, they're empty promises. If an angel were to show up and give us one wish, I wonder how many of us would fit the evangelical culture and ask that one wish, and whatever that may be, being temporary and, and, and not be like Solomon the only man ever to have been given a one-wish opportunity for, from God to ask for something deeper like wisdom. I thought you'd enjoy the story I received this past week. An angel came to a married couple and they were given one wish. They were in their mid-60s. Mid-60s. The angel said, look, I've been allowed to grant each of you one wish. Ladies first. The woman said, oh, My husband would never do this for me, so I get to wish it. I've just always wanted to go on a Caribbean cruise, and I'd love tickets for my husband and I to go first class all the way. And the angel said, sure. And poof, she was holding two first class tickets. The angel looked at her husband and said, okay, your turn. He looked down at his wife and kind of grinned and said, well, I'd like to go on that cruise with a woman 30 years younger than me. And the angel said, okay. And poof, he was 96. You worried me. I thought you missed it. You know, I'm really glad. (laughs) 
You know, one of the reasons we are, in fact, one of the reasons there will always be a market for spiritual con artists is because we do pander after those shortcuts and those easy roads to spiritual maturity. And and yeah, I guess we ought to be happy and we ought to be healthy. and, And surely as children of God, we ought to be wealthy. The truth is these, these false teachers are promising something they can't produce because the Word of God doesn't promise it until, until we are glorified and in His presence. And now as we suffer and long for the redemption of our bodies and, and the redemption as creation itself groans, we long for His coming. The truth is if people got everything these empty talkers promised, why would we ever want to go to heaven? Heaven would be anticlimactic. Why would we need it? In an issue of the Christian Post, they ran an article recently with this headline that caught my attention, Why Muslims Are Converting to Christianity. You're not going to see this on CBS, but you ought to know in our ministry it is now in the Middle East in Arabic and, and, and the fruit of ministry. That's not, not ours per se, but just the ministry of the gospel in that area is bringing a, a pout, incredible fruit. Here's an article, Why Muslims Are Converting to Christianity. Let me read you some of the reasons. Among the leading reasons were these. As they read the Bible, they are convicted by its truth. They are attracted by the concept of God's unconditional love through Jesus Christ. They can never be certain of their forgiveness from sin as Christians can be. Did you catch those words? Convicted. Truth. Sin. Forgiveness. The very words the false teachers never want to mention. Conviction. Sin. Truth. Forgiveness. And because of that, they promise things that they can't even produce anyway. So Paul tells Titus, here's the description for shepherds they need to be alerted to, they need to protect the flock from, and the church itself needs to be alerted and trained and disciplined to think critically. And here are the characteristics of con artists spiritually. Number one, they're known for their unaccountable personalities. Number two, they are known for their empty promises. And number three, they are known as deceptive promoters. Notice Paul writes further in verse 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now, follow me here. Literally, out of the circumcision. In other words, they are supposedly converts from among the Jewish people. And they've entered the church, and they've never really left their past. They're bringing in the baggage of Old Testament law, ritual, ceremony. Much of the book of Acts is going to attempt to deal with the issue of Jewish and Gentile believers reaching doctrinal consensus based on the gospel of the new covenant. And and by the way, this brand new organism called the church, nobody in the Old Testament had ever conceived of. These Jewish false teachers, especially those among the Jewish or the circumcision, it would be Gentile false teachers as well, but, but they wanted Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians. He had to walk through the gates of the temple, so to speak, to become a believer. So they demanded Gentiles be circumcised. Gentiles adhere to the Sabbath. They abstain from eating non-kosher meat. 
They keep the Mosaic law. They bow to rabbinical teachings. Basically, these false teachers wanted to turn Christianity into just one more Jewish sect. Paul will spend, if you read his letters, you'll know, he spends most of his life battling these Judaizers, they're called. They, they daubed his footsteps. They subverted his converts. They attacked his apostleship. They challenged his authority. They undermined his teaching. They, they distorted his gospel. To put it simply, here's what they're doing. They're teaching that the gospel isn't sufficient for faith. And they were teaching that grace was not satisfying for life. In other words, Jesus isn't enough, and you've got to keep all these rules in order to earn heaven. That was the false teaching core. Paul was not going to take this sitting down. I mean, this this lit a fire under him. So he tells Titus, verse 11, in very strong words, they must be silenced. You notice that? They've got to be silenced. Silence them. The word for silence literally means to muzzle, to cover over the mouth. The present tense indicates this is continuous Action, which lets you know that an elder, shepherd, believer in the body is never really off duty and watching for and being alerted to false teaching. You're never really two paces past it. Titus, Paul says, these false teachers need to be caught. They need to be exposed. They need to be silenced. Now, not by literally gagging them, but silencing them by delivering the truth. And the truth silences them. The truth protects the flock. This goes back to the qualification of an elder where he must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And would you notice what they're doing to the flock? Take a look at what they're doing. Paul gives us two results of being conned. Two things are happening here. Number one, families are being turned upside down. He writes further, these false teachers are upsetting whole families. They're turning everything upside down. The word upsetting is the same word used of Jesus Christ who turned over the tables in the temple. He upset them, Matthew 21, verse 12. Everything is turned upside down. So you can only imagine what he's referring to with the conflict and the anger and the emotion and the frustration in these churches on the island of Crete as these false teachers have literally turned everything over. I may have shared with you before, I can't remember, but I... Traveled to Africa several years ago, and I came to preach in several churches. Not long after one particular so-called prophet by the name of Benny Hinn had delivered a week-long conference in an arena nearby. And during his week of meetings, he announced that Jesus had personally told him that he would be appearing on stage with him one night that week. I, could, I can't remember if it, was, if it was Tuesday or Thursday. But on that particular night then, he suddenly looked over, over off the stage... And he began to get very excited, acting as if he was seeing Jesus, and, and uh, kind of went through all kinds of little gyrations. Then he said to the mob of thousands of people, did you see him? Did you see him? People were fainting. I was having lunch a month later in Kenya with two church leaders who served as secretaries over two evangelical denominations. And they told me that so many of their churches are frustrated now and confused and there are churches that are even splitting they're splitting over those who believed Jesus appeared and those who don't believe Jesus appeared 
Those who believe this man was a prophet and those who believe he told something that never really happened. Families turned upside down. A false teaching about Jesus and a false teacher who claimed to have direct communication with Jesus is now dividing the church into factions. This is happening on the island of Crete. Perhaps not the same way with the same message, but the same result. Not only were families being turned upside down, the second result of being conned was that the personal bank accounts of the teachers were filling up. Paul writes in verse 11, they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of what? Sordid gain. The preposition for the sake of indicates that this is the goal of their activity. This is why they're doing what they're doing. Now, they're not going to necessarily admit that, but Paul pulls the mask off and says, they're really after your money. They really don't want to care to feed the flock. They want to fleece the flock. And let me add to that thought, because Paul uses a word here for sordid gain that can mean money, but Paul also uses that word a couple of other times in his pastoral epistles for non-financial advantages like prestige and power and influence. So these false teachers are really more interested in what they can get out of people than what they can invest in people. And and as it relates to money, I've I've heard them say, you know, they, they can defend their lifestyles by saying that since they preach prosperity, they above all should live prosperously. And I guess people just nod their head and say, I guess that's right. And they keep sending in their little seed gifts. It never ceases to amaze me what false teachers get out of the Bible and what their followers never question. A number of the more prominent false teachers, many of them have 30-minute programs on cable. Sometimes on Sunday nights, I'm so wired, wide awake, so excited about the day and what's happened and I can't sleep. I'll go upstairs and turn on that cable channel and I'll watch them one after another. That's where I get my illustrations. I just, just watch them. <laughs> it occurs to me that if you eliminated everything from their programs having to do with wealth and health and prosperity and I'm a prophet of God, all you'd end up with is the opening music and the closing credits. Everything in between is false promotion, ultimately promoting themselves for the sake of gain. False teachers are not driven to build up believers. They are driven to fill up their pockets. They're nothing more than spiritual con artists. So expose them and silence them, at least for the sake of the flock over which God has entrusted you as elders and shepherds for their spiritual well-being. After spending Thanksgiving with their family in Seattle, Washington, a family of four began their long journey back to San Francisco. The parents' names were James and Katie, and they had two daughters, ages four and seven months. They traveled south on Interstate 5, 
until late into the evening, they intended to exit onto Highway 42 and spend the night in a lodge, but they missed their turn. Instead of backtracking, they decided to follow a map that seemed to show a shortcut to the coast. They didn't notice the fine print and the warning that this particular road might be closed during winter months. And it was the dead of winter. After encountering on Highway 42 drifts too high to drive through, they turned off onto a spur road. The map seemed to indicate that would get them to their destination. According to one area resident interviewed later, he said that was a tragic decision. He said, once you get off the main road, you're lost. After struggling for 15 miles along that unpaved road, their station wagon became stuck in the drifting snow. Rather than attempting to backtrack on foot, the family decided to remain with the car and hope to be rescued. They remained there for one week, this article said, running the car intermittently for heat and rationing their small amount of food. Once the car ran out of gas, they burned magazines and wet wood and eventually the tires on their car to try and keep warm enough. And James, the father, eventually decided to hike back for help thinking that he was about four miles from the nearest town. He was actually 15 miles away. A search party eventually rescued his wife and two children. But James never made it out alive. You know, when I read a story like that, I immediately think of the flock. The flock. Traveling on a road leading home and false teachers standing on the roadside selling imitation maps and not pointing out the fine print, promising shortcuts to the coast. Saying, you know, there's no need to struggle through long valleys. You don't have to bother with thin air on mountaintops. You... You follow our way, it's easier, it's, it's better, it's happier, it's healthier, it's faster. You can have all your wishes come true. Dear flock, don't be conned. Be careful. Here's the startling warning from Paul. Don't be conned by Christians who come in the name of Jesus. Listen, saying Jesus is part of their scam. Saying, now why don't you right now ask him to be your Lord is part of their scam. They are deceptive promoters of truths that don't match up with the Word of God. They offer empty, shallow, temporary promises as the core content of their teaching, and they are unaccountable to anybody don't be conned. Stay the course. May we be a flock of believers willing to avoid the advertisements for all the shortcuts, but be willing to travel the long way home, no matter how difficult. 
May God also give us shepherds who know how to read the map and are willing to teach it correctly. Titus, go find men who are willing to wear the mantle of a true teacher, promising only what God promises, speaking only what God has spoken. Go find them. They wear the mantle of a true shepherd. Father, thank you for the delight of your word. Thank you for the satisfying pasture ground of your truth. Thank you for the genuine promise of your spirit to walk with us, to lead and guide us, even if it's through a long valley and up the side of a steep mountain. Help us to understand that a true teacher is going to cause us to long more for you, not him. To long more for heaven as home, not here. To yield our desires and submit them to your will, not ours. To find the truth that our greatest satisfaction is bound up in and found in you and all that you have given us. Like the joy of this assembly and the unique privilege of worshiping you together. We thank you. Let's allow our benediction to be this little chorus I introduced you to a few months ago. It's been a while since we've sung it. Let's sing it. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All that I need. Can I just repeat that melody line? Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. Jesus is all I need. And all the people said?